Matthew said that uh, when you preach, go to the pulpit. I'm like, well, yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, which one is that? <laughs> uh, it's so good to be with you folks this, this morning. I bring greetings from Centerville, Tennessee, from your sister church, Heritage Church over there, and our, our love and affections and our prayer to go out uh, for you and your church, as I'm sure they are reciprocated for us as well. And what a wonderful thing it is as I come here today, I remind myself of the words of the Apostle Paul when he is going to visit Rome and he wants uh, to, to exchange gifts so that they all might be edified. And I trust that that is uh, true today. I've already been greatly edified in my time together uh, with you this morning and even with the Clarks yesterday. Uh, I'm going to be bringing a message from Romans 14, and if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans 14, the message will actually be from verses 14 through 23, uh, but I'm going to read the entire uh, passage in Romans for its immediate context, and in the honor of the reading of God's Word, I'd ask that everybody stand with me as we read together the Word of God. Now hear the Word of the Lord. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let, him, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived Again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more. But rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who is considered, considers unclean to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let, him, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith 
is sin. Our gracious Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would open up now his word to us and pray that our eyes would be open, our ears would hear, our hearts would receive the good things from our God. How thankful we are that you laid your life down for us, our Lord Jesus, that we might have life eternal in you. We pray now the Spirit of God would apply the the message to our, our hearts and to our individual lives, and we pray the Spirit of God would also apply it to our corporate life. We pray you would sanctify us in this your truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Each month, our church has been meeting with what we call the future of heritage. It's Folks from about 14, 15 years of age up to their mid-30s, and it's really what we're looking at is you are the future of heritage. And each month we meet together, we begin thinking about the church. What is the church? It was part of the, the time that we met together as we go through Ephesians, and I gave you just a very broad view of Ephesians 1 through 3 in one evening. And as we consider what the church is, Paul puts it in that epistle, and the epistle of Ephesians is this little letter written to explain what the church is, and therefore how then we should apply it to our lives. The epistle of Ephesians could be summed up this way, it is... The work primarily of God the Father, through Jesus Christ, in his church, for his glory, forever. And as we consider this epistle, it is what God is doing in revealing a mystery that has been previously hidden in the ages past, and what he's now doing in the church as he reveals what this glorious church is in Christ. And as we begin reading that, almost a high watermark of, of even the scriptures itself, but certainly in the epistles, when we come to the third chapter of Ephesians, when it speaks about this great mystery now revealed to us, it is in the church that the angels and the principalities and the powers look and observe in the church and learn of the manifold wisdom of God. By observing us. They're they're watching us right now. And they're learning something about the manifold wisdom of God. And in this, as God shows his awe and his, his inspiring awe among the angels, but also among the world and among each other as Christians, so that this becomes an organism a perpetual glory for God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so the church is a perpetual glory organism, if you will. And even today, the glory of God is being ascribed as the angels marvel at what God has done through Jesus Christ in the church. As he comes then to the fourth chapter he begins the application phase of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 through 3, it's all teaching. In fact, there's only one command in the entire three chapters found in chapter 2, and it's the word remember. It's the only uh, imperative. Other than that, it's just indicative teaching, teaching, teaching of God's grace. But in chapter 4, almost in repetitive, rapid-fire succession, imperative, 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 and it's just this application of everything he has just gotten finished telling us. And the very first application he opens up in chapter 4, verse 1, which begins this way, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And what he's meaning here in terms of what worthy of your calling, this is your regenerative calling in the Spirit of God. This is your Christian calling. And the very first place that he begins is walk worthy of your Christian calling. And how are you to do this? What is it that you are to be doing? You are to be endeavoring. I think the King James says striving to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How are we to do this? In lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And there's our first application of being the church. And being the church is something of angelic marvel. They will look down upon us and they will see us doing this and they will marvel to the glory of God. All of the applications given in chapter 4 through 6 are things that we cannot do in our flesh. They are not natural to us in our flesh, in our fallen flesh. They require the Spirit of God and they are supernatural. We can't do anything that really causes the angels to marvel in our flesh, but with the Spirit of God, see, they will. The angels have been around since the beginning of creation. They've seen it all. But to see a people unified and bound together in love and in peace and working together for a common end and seeing this is something they have not seen before until the church, this mystery that has been revealed, empowered by the Spirit of God, is now here. And this kingdom here upon this earth. And so they marvel at this. This is not something ordinary. And that's why Paul reminds us of our calling. That the spirit of God has empowered us to fulfill. By this being the first thing. As we think about. These things. These applications now in which we live. What's foreign to the fallen man of which we once were children of disobedience. One thing that's foreign to that person, that old man of ours, is thinking and living covenantally. And part of our sanctification is to learn how to think is... We just rehearsed from Romans 12. It's how to think and how to live covenantally. Americans are particularly prone not to think covenantally. It's not a slam on Americans. I love, I'm very thankful I'm an American, but I always have to think about this mindset of the Scripture. And since I'm a product of my own culture in which I live, this is something that has to be renewed in my mind. This autonomous spirit, this fiercely independent, this rugged individualism. We think in terms of democracy and rule of the people by the people. That's not covenantal. And we have to learn to think differently in order to behave differently. It's not natural to our fallen flesh. But it is what God is making us to be in Christ. Romans 14, this entire chapter is dealing with Christians who differ with one another. But they're differing with one another in matters of sanctification. Important matters. But they differ in one another in matters of sanctification, which causes division in the church and spiritual harm to the brethren. And there's two categories. There's the strong and the weak. The weak are those who have a conscience that testifies against them of a certain position that the Bible does not clearly forbid. The strong, however, are those who have liberty in such areas where the Bible does not clearly forbid. And because the weak Christian's conscience judges him for certain practices, that will also be his tendency to judge others for those practices. And Romans 14 exhorts the weaker brother, don't do that. 
But because the stronger brother finds nothing in the Bible prohibiting from certain practices, he considers um, his conscience doesn't bother him on this. He has liberty, but then he views the weaker brother in a way that somewhat despises him. The word despise or shows contempt means to look down upon or belittle in some way. And the word of God says, don't do that. So he has exhortations to both the weaker and the stronger. And the passage has reminded us that we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And it will be there that all of this will be dealt with. And you have to be concerned about yourself for that day. Not about your brother for that day. So if the weak simply took their position without judging others, and the strong practiced their liberties without despising the weak, then why can't we simply just leave it there? Romans 14, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, which is our passage we'll focus on, is there to address that very issue. And we could leave it there if it were not for the possibility causing others to stumble. It's this idea of thinking that we are in this all together, covenantally, bound to one another in Christ Jesus with the Spirit of God. So whatever I do is going to affect you. I fundamentally believe that your personal individual sanctification adds to the corporate sanctification of the body of Christ, but not only to this assembly, but somehow, some way, to believers who are going to live 400 years from now in China. I just don't know how all of that works. But the Bible speaks of a corporate sanctification in Ephesians. And when we rejoice, when one rejoices, we all rejoice with it. But I also believe that where we stumble and struggle in our sins, it also hinders the body from being edified. And so we all have personal responsibilities to Christ for the body and for the body's sake. There's a saying that I give to our musicians, and I'm constantly trying to remind them to, uh, as they lead the worship praise, as they are stimulating and inspiring our our praise and worship of God and music. Sometimes we have to make decisions, and I want them to always be filtering things through one particular filter, what is best for the body. If I have to stand down or if I have to forego a particular something rather, and that's a grid that I think that we should all have to think through. What is best for the body of Christ? And then organize my life with the applications then that would be true there. From verses 14 forward here, the scriptures address the very possibility of a weaker brother stumbling, and therefore the primary person it is dealing with is the stronger. If Christians are going to live in harmony in the church, someone's going to have to give. And the scriptures are commanding the stronger to yield to the weaker brother. In fact, they can do so because they are stronger. And that's why there's a number of imperatives and commands in this passage to the stronger ones as the chapter then comes to a close. The stronger have more options than the weaker. And therefore, they can yield to the weaker in areas that the weak cannot yield with their conscience. Now this section of scripture teaches us quite clearly that you can't merely leave it to a local church to allow it to practice whatever the individuals see fit to practice. See, we're all interwoven together in a tapestry. We all affect one another. Every decision we make individually will affect the whole group. We have to think and live covenantally. We don't want to get hung up on the non-essentials. 
Don't strive and quarrel over matters that cause strife. Over those endless genealogies, if you will, putting it back in the Jewish framework, which cause disputes. Or over the Old Testament ordinances and ceremonial law that has been fulfilled and and these matters that we can parse and, and, and you know, there's modern applications even to, to New Testament Christians over even matters of, of orthodoxy. We can even take something that's very good and become argumentative to the place where the application we've completely missed. I think about this in terms of even the sacraments. The sacraments that God gave to his church are that which marks us out of the world, unifying together, unifying us together in communion. That's what we're going to do shortly. And yet, how many times we can make this a matter of contention and divisiveness within the church, undoing the very essence of what the sacrament is holding out for us. So, when we think about what Paul is addressing to Timothy, not to strive about words that do not profit, we have to be careful. I have to be careful. Because an opinionated person can be a divisive person if he or she tends to strive about his opinions or gets dogmatic about his opinions. I'm drawing a a distinction between my opinion and the truth, by the way. And so Paul would tell young Timothy, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words that do not profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be careful about being too strong of an opinionated person. It tends toward divisiveness in the church. So the primary principle in this last section of Romans 14 that governs us in our actions is this principle of Christian charity, this agape love that he's expressing here in verse 15. There's a section of Luther's table talk that he he spoke on the topic of discord. I'm just going to quote this portion from his table talk. On the 10th of February, 1546, John, Prince Elector of Saxony, said, A controversy were easily settled if parties would exhibit some concord. Luther said, We would willingly have concord, but no man seeks after the medium of concord, which is charity. He goes on and says, When two goats meet upon a narrow bridge over deep water, how do they behave? Neither of them can turn back again. Neither can pass the other because the bridge is too narrow. If they should thrust one another, they might both fall into the water and be drowned. Nature then has taught them That if one lays himself down and permits the other to go right over him, both will remain unhurt. Even so, people should rather endure to be trod upon than to fall into debate and discord with one another. Let your love govern your spirit with every brother, weak or strong. Be ready. When you come face to face with a brother over a particular issue that is a non-essential, on the narrow bridge with the chasm below, be ready and first to lay down so that your brother can trample right across your back so that you both may get on to your safe journey. That's especially true for the strong. And the scripture has some considerations as it pertains to your liberties in the presence of the weak. First of all, in verse 15, it says, Do not destroy your brother for food. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ has died. 
Don't destroy your brother for food. A weaker brother is not one who simply has a grievance with you about your practice, but one who is prone to fall into your practice against his own conscience. A second application in verse 16 is do not let your good be evil spoken of. Therefore, do not let your good be evil spoken of. You know, you can do something good, but do it in a wrong way or in the wrong context, and it can cause your good to be evil spoken of. And when your good is evil spoken of, it's not a good testimony. It's not a good testimony for Jesus. It's not something of which the angels will look down and marvel Do not let your liberty be blasphemed, would be another way to put that. And the good here refers to your your liberty. You can enjoy a good thing, but you can enjoy it in the right context. But Scripture here warns us not to allow the good liberty that you have to be blasphemed. The danger of liberty that you have is that it can be characterized. There's a way to exercise your liberty in such a way that others speak evil about it. Going to a feast of friends where meat from the idle market might be served is quite different from exercising that liberty to the extent that I am known for that liberty. In other words, there's a way we can flaunt it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to a feast today with meat offered to idols because it's my liberty. And there's a way and a spirit that we can have that flaunts those liberties in a way that it causes others to speak evil against them. I've made such a point about it. I'm wearing it on my sleeve or out on my coattail, and I so openly display my liberty, I want you to know about it. I write about it. I Instagram about it. I social media about it. I put it on Facebook about it. I just tout my liberties, and I dare you to challenge me, because I'm going to go here and show you otherwise. People instigate this kind of spirit that's divisive. I just keep on harping about it. I keep telling you it's okay. To the extent that I've become known for this. I'm becoming characterized in what I am doing. And that's the warning of the Spirit here. Don't let your good be evil spoken of. My good liberty will become evil in some people's sight because of the way I handle it. There's always a context in the covenantal framework and the living and the thinking in which we live. Always a context. Always a context of others. Of how my actions will affect their thinking. How my applications of Scripture will affect their view of God. And how the angels will will marvel or not based upon how I live in context. And I would just caution us all here because of this factor, how we communicate in public or online, being careful and attentive to others, being loving and respectful to others. If people read your posts, I don't know if there's folks here that do the social media, but it's a common thing in our world. But as other people read your oh, that's a loving person. That person's gentle. I, I respect the humility in which he writes. Is that the characterization? Or is it something that is a spirit there that is not really of angelic marvel? Because you don't want to set the stage and be responsible for other people 
calling evil something that God has said is good. We do take some responsibility for that. And that's why the command is addressed to the strong with liberties that they can, that he can exercise rightly, but discretion is here taught regarding the context. So as a Christian, you always need to act and live in the deference of those around you. You know, eternal life, Jesus says in his high priestly prayers, identified as, as a relationship. And this is eternal life. That you may know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. The knowledge, this relational knowledge with God and his Son that then gets expressed horizontally in our love for one another. And so in verses 17 and 18, Paul then continues the discussion on the particular command here. He wants us to have the right reasoning about these things. In verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. First of all, God wants us to reason correctly about the nature of God's kingdom. When we think about the kingdom of God, there's a lot of expression and different models today about what it is and what it's not and how it expresses or when it's going to come or is it already here. Lots of theological perspectives on the kingdom of God. Well, I can assure you the kingdom has come because the king has come. And that was what Jesus was preaching. That's what John the Baptist was preaching. Ah, the the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's the king. And as the king is here, the kingdom has come. And while the primary audience that Paul is addressing is the strong, the truth is equally applicable to the weak and to the strong. Jesus now corrects the weak with the same thinking when he says in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man, for out of the mouth or out of the heart are the issues of life, and from the heart the mouth speaks. And so he's addressing that same kind of principle to the weaker brethren, but to the strong here, Paul says, it's not worth exercising a liberty if it causes your brother to speak against it. He explains that the kingdom is not about exercising liberties, even though you have them. But it's about the character of God developing in His people. The character of God. I encourage our future of heritage people. I said there is nothing that will change this world more with a greater impact than your personal Christian character. If you want to work on one thing more than anything else, exercise yourself unto godliness. That will actually have more effect on the change of the world than anything else you will ever do. There's a lot to parse that out and to flesh it out, but I stand by that. Even though that's not the message for the hour, it is part of the message for the hour. He says here, the kingdom is about righteousness. This is adherence to a standard. That's what righteousness means. Adherence to a standard. We think about the mundane illustration when we are not to have unrighteous scales or unrighteous weights. The word in some of those translations are unjust. It's the word righteous. And that means it's not conforming to a standard. It's a way that I can embezzle or or cheat someone if they come and buy a pound of something at the market and I have a weight that says a pound, but it's not really a pound. It's lighter than that. And I put it on the scales. I'm actually selling you something that's a little lighter than a pound. That's unrighteous scales in an unrighteous way. Righteousness is that which conforms to a standard in its most mundane sense. 
Jesus conformed to the standard of the law that he himself gave. But the standard truly is love. And, and, and that is where the law is just the summation of biblical godly charity of love. So the adherence to the standard of love. That's what the kingdom is. It's, it's of this kind of righteousness. It is of peace, harmony among the brethren, of joy. This is God's satisfaction of life in every circumstance. That's what the kingdom is. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. And secondly, when we reason correctly about such things, it is pleasing to God, and it is to be valued by men. That's what verse 18 is getting at. It's our character is what commends us, not our crusading for liberties, but it's our character, how we relate to one another. It takes a lot of character to lay down for somebody else for them to trot across your back. It's what we were just reading about, I believe, in loving your enemies. Robert E. Lee, we were speaking about him yesterday, and he had a character that even his enemies could not speak against. They couldn't find a fault with him. And that's the idea. Verse 19 is the conclusion of the matter. That's why it begins with, therefore. There's a conclusion here that I'm drawing based upon what was previously said. Therefore, he says in verse 19, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify, build up one another. Peace and edification are two unique relational blessings of the kingdom of God. They are characteristics that bring harmony and unity, and building up of the church of Jesus Christ. In verse 20, these unique relational characteristics are pursued by stopping, tearing down of God's work. Verse 20 says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And we could apply a lot of other things in that, for the sake of blank, fill the blank in. showing us here how harmony and edification are to be pursued by every member in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why in Ephesians he was saying, striving together, endeavoring for the unity of the spirit of faith. And while it is true that there is nothing inherently sinful in things like meat and wine... There indeed can be evil in the context in which those things are enjoyed. Or how we enjoy it. Or the manner in which. So verse 20 says it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It's sinful because of the context of others. It's a relational issue. It's a covenantal issue of how my actions affect other people. And what am I pursuing? Am I pursuing their edification? Or as Paul would say in Ephesians, am I esteeming others better than I am myself? And then verse 21 through 23, he goes on as he begins to conclude, in some cases this peace and edification are pursued by taking a position of abstinence, if context calls for it. In some cases, we cannot righteously partake of our liberties, whatever that may be, because it would not show love. It would not be pursuing peace. It would not be helpful in building up the church of Jesus Christ. It would not help the angels look down and go, Whoa, God. But it would take away from it. 
See, the way you live your life out in the context of this covenant community that we call the church is going to be a way that's going to cause the angels to go, whoa, look at that. Or it's going to be just like the same old. They've seen that before. We need to be mindful that we always have a watching audience. There will be some situations where the dynamics and the context makes something acceptable or not. What the objectives are. Who I'm in the company with. What is it that God would be glorified in? What is pleasing to God and commendable to men? That's what the verse says. May I add from Paul's phrase in Ephesians and what causes angels to marvel. Now, if you have faith, you can do it unto God. If you don't have faith, speaking to the weaker brethren, so that your conscience bothers you, do not abandon your conscience. I always encourage our folks, never go against your conscience. Now, your conscience is only as good as it is illuminated by the Scripture of God. It's only as good as what the Scripture is. It's kind of like a sundial. And you know, sundials can be out of whack sometimes. But it's only as good as the light that is shining upon it. Never abandon your conscience. Never go against your conscience. Now this is not a situation in Romans 14 of situational ethics here because we're not dealing where the Word of God prescribes the ethics. That's where the disagreements are among good men. That's not the point of Romans 14. So to live righteously and to give our bodies as a living living sacrifice unto God, there are some situations and occasions where we will need to abstain for whatever it is or whatever it is from exercising our liberties because of the context of the other people with whom we are to love and whom we need to be aware of. And sometimes we simply need to lay down our lives like Christ laid them down for us. Even while we were yet sinners. And lay our lives down for a brother so he can trample right across our back. And we can do that by the grace of God with his spirit. And that's the only way we can do that but to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Samuel Rutherford, who that name may ring a bell to some of you, was one of the most influential Scottish ministers of the 17th century. He was instrumental in the meeting at Westminster Abbey and the writing up of the Confession of Faith that we know as the Westminster Confession of Faith, along with many others over several years. But Rutherford, being a Scottish Presbyterian, had very strong convictions against the liturgy of the Church of England. And so influential was he that his fellow Scots took a very strong stance against the book of common prayer of which the Church of England prescribed and even imposed upon them to use as liturgy. Now the Book of Common Prayer has some beautiful prayers and liturgies and a lot of our liturgies are even borrowed and taken as a pattern from this. But they were living in a very different context. You might remember the context back in that day. of a little story, and I'm on a little tangent here, of Jenny Geddes. In the very first service of Giles Kirk in Edinburgh, when the minister used the Book of Common Prayer for that first time, she took a three-legged stool and threw it at the minister's head, and a riot broke out over that issue. 
one given to stories, not to try to make too much of a rabbit trail here. I was in Edinburgh for the first time in Giles Kirk back in 2017, and I was sitting there in a service, and the minister comes into the pulpit, and we're sitting right next to this three-legged stool that's kind of memorial of that time. And the minister, within the space of 15 minutes, denied the virgin birth of Christ, the bodily resurrection, the inspiration of the, of the scriptures, within, all within 15 minutes. And I debated. <laughs> I didn't know if it was anchored down or not, but I'm telling you, what was going on in my head at the moment, okay, I will be thrown in jail, there will be ramifications, it will ruin my vacation. If it's not, it's all worth it. But I said, you know, did, did I really hear him right? I, I'm always a little reserved. and You can ask me what happened later, but it was a, a confrontation with him after the service that, that ended in my little temper tantrum on the Royal Mile, all to the the shock of my family with whom I was with, and it was, uh, it was something. But anyway, uh, I digress. A riot broke out because they weren't using the Book of Common Prayer for their liturgy. Now, Rutherford had strong convictions on this, and he was even put out of his church for not conforming to the liturgy of the Church of England in his day. But during his ministry, there was a fellow by the name of James Usher, who was an archbishop in the Church of England, and he was passing by one day the place where Rutherford lived, and he had heard of Rutherford's godly piety, and he desired to meet Rutherford. So what he did is he disguised himself as a poor beggar, and he showed up at Rutherford's doorstep on a Saturday evening. As was his custom in his home on Saturday evenings, Rutherford catechized the children and the servants of the household, and that evening, Usher took place among them as a poor beggar. Mrs. Rutherford turned to Usher and asked him, how many commandments are there? To which he replied, 11. And the history shows that Mrs. Rutherford chided him a bit for not knowing the correct answer that any six-year-old in our house could answer. That night, Usher was given a bed in which to sleep, and he slept that night with the Rutherfords. The next morning, Samuel, as was his Lord's Day morning custom, rose up very early to walk through the garden and pray. And as he went, he heard a voice already in the garden from a thicket, which was praying such an eloquent prayer for piety in the assembly of the day, that Rutherford was so moved that he thought for a moment that he might be entertaining an angel unaware. And it was in the garden that morning that Rutherford became aware of the identity of that poor beggar. And he asked him to preach in his pulpit that day, to which he did. But Rutherford did not identify his identity to the congregation. He simply introduced him as a strange Stranger, um, strange minister passing by is how he was introduced. Usher approached the pulpit and he opened the text to John 13, 34, which read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And on hearing it, Mrs. Rutherford understood now the answer he gave the night before. And Samuel Rutherford and James Usher, despite their strong differences, went on to remain strong friends from that day forward. Sometimes, for the sake of a brother, we must forego our liberties, even our strong opinions, 
and lay down and allow our brother to walk right across our back. It is an act of love for which God is pleased, that commends us to men, and in which angels will marvel of the manifold wisdom of God. And that's what Jesus did for us. He laid his life down that in time, we might come to see more clearly the greater truths that govern his kingdom. Love your brother. Do not let your liberties be blasphemed. Pursue peace and edification. Lay your life down for the brethren. What is best for the body, do. And Paul would say, I'm especially talking to you who are strong. And in doing so, we please God, and we commend ourselves to men, and we make the angels marvel. May God help us to live according to the gospel and the covenant love and the covenant relationship we have with him, with one another. Our gracious Father in heaven, by this we ask that you would hallow your name. We ask that you would bring us more under the lordship of Jesus Christ and cause that kingdom to grow in us. May the love of Christ be full in us and may his grace overflow us into one another. And for his sake, may we be merciful as he is merciful to us. May we draw from the abundance of forgiveness that he has given us that we may give but a little to all of our brethren which will be sufficient for all of their sins against us. You have forgiven us much. We pray, Father, that you would guide us to to pursue unity and peace in the truth of the gospel. No matter what our denominational stripe may be, or our perspective, or even what our strong opinions and and non-essential convictions are. We pray for the sake of Christ, that you would unify your church, that we might be of angelic marvel, that they may learn the manifold wisdom of God by the abundance of grace that you have given to us. And so let your kingdom come. And your will be done here on earth as it's done perfectly by the angels. So we commit our lives to you and all the application that your spirit would, would take and apply to us individually, apply to us corporately as your people. And may we be faithful in this that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.